You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Robert Carver and I, Niels Kastler-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you are new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning, enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation last week with Mark where we had quite a wide-ranging conversation from Jerome Powell's recent speech and how central banks can often confuse markets to the potential of artificial intelligence in systematic investing and whether or not holding government bonds is a good idea. So I hope you will check out this episode if you missed it. Now, as you know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund, CTA, or quant investment world, whatever you prefer to call it. And if you want to be part of the journey, what we ask of you is to comment, if you can share these episodes, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we greatly appreciate it. And this way we can see that you get some value from the time we put in and the dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, of course, we will continue to create them. Rob, always great to be back with you. How are things where you are in the UK? Pretty good. Yeah, I've just about recovered from my last appearance on the show where, of course, I had to go six rounds with Jerry, which was good entertainment, but quite mentally bruising for me. But yeah, it's nice and sunny outside. And on Monday, the rules start to be relaxed in terms of our lockdown. So looking forward to things getting a bit closer back to normal. Yeah, there were no knockouts during that uh, episode, but I do think there were a couple of close encounters that people should go back and, and listen yeah. to. So, uh, I'd like to think that it was like a draw on points, but um, certainly I, I, I feel like I took a few tough punches, definitely. <laughs> I think we're going to have a rematch later in the year for sure, <laughs> without a doubt. So, But good stuff. Now, in terms of a quick market wrap, or maybe not so quick, I don't know, fixed income markets continue to attract a lot of attention. And this week we saw the yield to maturity on U.S. Treasury notes and bonds fall, somewhat retracing the sharp upward trend higher that we've seen in place since the beginning of uh, 2021. Most Treasury auctions fared better this week, and as a few risk-off days driven by extended German lockdowns and the Suez Canal blockage stimulated buying at higher yield levels. The bid did, though, fade somewhat as we headed into the close of uh, on Friday. And once again, we had a sloppy seven-year Treasury note auction on Thursday, which turned maybe the sentiment a little bit. We also saw quite a few Fed speakers out this week, and they reiterated the point that inflation uptick that we see at the moment and maybe in the coming months should be ignored. The Fed seems to be underestimating the inflation risk and the U.S. Treasury financing needs as the latter embarks on additional fiscal spending of $2 trillion for pandemic relief. And in addition, there is another $4 trillion nearly in relief efforts so far. And President Biden, of course, now is pushing for another $3 trillion of an infrastructure plan. If I said billion earlier on, I probably meant trillion. It's all those zeros, but there we are. And of course, we're coming to the end of the first quarter. I think it's reasonable to expect that we're going to see further upward pressure on rates in the U.S., as activity rebounds, as they promise, higher GDP growth. 
and also the lapse of the SLR exemption that the Fed had granted to banks with respect of bank holdings of U.S. Treasury notes. So I think that we'll see an interesting continued development in the fixed income space in the coming month. And Rob, just before we dive into some of the questions and topics and all of that good stuff, what stood out to you since you were last on, which is obviously not that long ago, in terms of maybe some market moves, of course, your own performance, anything in particular? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the, the whole fixed income thing is fascinating, isn't it? Because as we even ask the question, like, what is inflation now? Because obviously, it depends on, <laughs> you know, what you put in your inflation basket. Everyone's inflation basket is changing I mean, like right now, my inflation basket is probably quite different, I would hope, from what it's going to be like in a few months' time, because at the moment, I'm not spending any money in restaurants, for example, you know, whereas in a few months' time, I hope to be spending a lot of money in restaurants. So so I think trying to look at near-term inflation numbers and, and make any kind of sense of them, I think the right thing to do is just to ignore them and assume there's going to be a hell of a lot of short-term noise. We're not really going to know for, a, you know, probably at least a year what the kind of long-term or medium-term structural pressures are in, in the economy. But uh, I, I got a bit sidetracked there. Sorry about that. So, so yeah, my month month to date numbers, I thought I'd look at those as it's been about a month since I've last been on. And actually, my best performing market was one that is close to you geographically, Niels, which was uh, the Swiss Stock Market Index, mm-hmm. which, um, interestingly, that was my most profitable market in the last few weeks. So that that's interesting. I also made money in, in the French stock market and also in, in French bonds, interestingly. So, yeah, an, an OK month. I'm up about 85 basis points on the month. Down markets, mostly agricultural, so pork bellies, uh, sorry, lean hogs, and soybean, wheat, that kind of stuff. Year to date, I'm still down about 2.8%. So, so making some of the loss for the year back so far, but you know, not a hugely dramatic month either way. Not really much risk in fixed income, to be honest. I feel like I'm sitting on the sidelines watching the party happen. I guess that reflects the kind of risk and uncertainty that there's not really a clear trend to get your teeth into at the moment. Yeah. I wouldn't worry, though. I think the party's going to go on for quite a while. <laughs> so... So I'm sure you'll be uh, you'll be let in later on. On our side, trend following performance was down less than a percent this week, as many of the sectors continue to continue to correct. It's still a positive month for the month of March. Currencies in particular struggled this month due to a firmer US dollar. Also, the longer dated bonds were up this last week, and since we're short those, uh, that caused a little bit of loss on our side, and there was no real help in grains or softs for that matter. However, most of those losses we saw was offset by stronger equity markets, as well as the meat sector, and actually the lean hawks were the best performing market for us uh, this week. And, and this correction in performance, trend-following performance, is confirmed by my trend barometer. It actually dropped further this week down to a level of 32, which is pretty weak. So that's fully in line with what we see performance-wise. In the volatility space, there were a few interesting things going on. I thought that the VIX term structure steepened slightly over the week. Again, mostly due to the final hour or so of the week, the VIX declined, even though the effect of the increase in the S&P was offset to some degree by an increase in quote-unquote uncertainty. The implied volatility skew slope steepened a bit, and we still see a very steep S&P 500 index option skew. And that probably reflects a higher price to protect against the fat tail event, if and when it comes. And some not-so-small single stocks, by the way, have certainly needed a bit protection in the last couple of weeks. I noticed that Viacom CBS, which is a large media stock, is down 61% since March 15, which was its high. 
Discovery, <laughs> another media stock, uh, is down 56% since its high on the 19th of March. And of course, when big names like this decline with such a large percentage within a few days, really, there seems to be something rotten going on in, in the price structure, so to speak. And of course, as we've mentioned before, the higher implied volatility being attributed to the higher single stock volatility and especially the this euphoric retail option buying, there seems to be a little bit of a slowdown as single stock call option volumes has retraced, as has some of the prices on the favorites like Bitcoin and Tesla. And by the way, for instance, I noticed that the five-day average of total U.S. call option volume has dropped 33% in the span of 39 trading days, as investors you know, often use call options to bet on rising share prices, and that seems a little bit of showing signs of fatigue. All in all, our volatility program was down a fraction this week, still up for the month. For my own trend-following portfolio model, it was a pretty flat week, actually, which surprised me, so it kept up pretty well. It's still up 2.86% for the month, up 8.23% for the year. Performance so far this month is all coming, or it's coming from all three groups. So group one, actually doing best, classical trend doing best. Group two and group three are almost tied for second place in terms of performance. In terms of sector attributions this month, equities are doing best, followed by foreign exchange and base metals sits in third. And the worst sectors this month really are softs and energies, which are down slightly. If I go and have a look at the single markets, no change really since last week. The DAX, the US 10-year note, and just like you, Rob, the SMI doing pretty well, uh, making up the top three markets. And then at the bottom this month, we have German Bunds, the Nikkei, and Dr. Copper. And in terms of trading this week, the system had a pretty quiet week. It did sell some... Sugar, some Aussie dollar, silver, Nikkei, British pounds, and coffee. And then one of the fast-reacting models has tried to go long, the German Bund, as it's been rebounding. And then finally, in terms of the risk levels that I'm seeing in the portfolio, the risk-to-stop measure, where I look at what would happen if all the positions got stopped out on Monday. The model now would lose 8.81%, and that's down from 9.96% last week. So stops are coming in a little bit closer than from the week before. And finally, I think the system, when I counted it, did less than 10 trades this week, so nothing dramatic. Now, before we move on to questions that came in from Dennis, Ricardo, Kat, Gustavo, and Emra, I just want to bring up something that you wrote about in a recent blog post. And so it'll be interesting to see where we're going to go with this. But I think the question you raised was, does it make sense to change your behavior during different periods of volatility? Which, of course, given what happened last year and where we saw record high levels of volatility and given that it's only like three or four years ago we saw record low levels of volatility in 2017 i thought that's a really interesting question i have no idea where you're going to go with this because i I didn't have time to read your blog post but let's see where we go so what are your thoughts i mean the first thing to say it wasn't my kind of thought it was something i read on a, a bulletin board somebody said ask this question and a lot of these questions you think that's that's at first you think actually you know what the way I trade is very simple. Volatility scaling means that when you open the position up, you're changing the size of the position you would have. And of course, you know, 
Jerry and Moritz do things a bit differently in the sense that they wouldn't then adjust their position, but actually I would subsequently adjust my position. We've obviously been through this argument a few times now. So I, my first thought was, you know what, why would you need to do that? Because the system automatically changes its behavior in the sense that it changes position size for different levels of volatility. So my first thought was, you know what, this is going to be one of those things that naive, unsophisticated traders going to assume there's going to be a big difference in the way your system should behave or perhaps at least there might be so much statistical noise that you couldn't really distinguish between the behaviors so that was my first prior assumption and then I started to think you know what we had this discussion about a year ago or just under a year ago now when we saw fast trend following systems do really well in the market crash in March last year and the reason they did well of course was the market collapsed and then whipsawed back up again and a fast system could obviously ride that trend all the way down and all the way up again. Maybe a really slow system would have not, not done anything during that period, but a medium speed system would have got absolutely killed because, of course, it would have been at its max short position just as the market rebounded. So, so then I thought, well, maybe actually there could be something in here. And actually what you should be doing is trading faster as the market gets more volatile. So that was my second expectation. But then I did, of course, what you should really do, which is not start making assumptions, but go and look at the data. So what I did was... I thought, I'm going to use a measure of volatility that makes sense for each individual market by itself. So I'm not using like a macro level of volatility. I'm just going to say, right, here's the, the sort of annual percentage volatility for this particular market. If I look at what that's like versus the distribution of historic volatility over the last 10 years, where does it sit in that distribution? So is this a period of historically high volatility for this market or is it a period historically low volatility or is it in the middle somewhere and then i looked at the profitability of different speeds of of momentum systems and, and i threw in carry as well just out of curiosity and uh, there were two effects then the first was it was reasonably strong there was definitely something there and that was that in fact the opposite of what i'd expected which is that actually when the market was really volatile the fast trend following systems did quite badly compared to the slower ones and compared to carry. So the opposite of what I'd expected. And someone very helpfully said, so maybe it's costs. Is it because of costs? Because my first instinct is usually just to calculate all returns after costs because, you know, that's more realistic. But I thought maybe what's going on here is that the market's jumping around so much that the fast system is just paying too much in costs. But even when I looked at the gross returns and took the costs out, I still had the same pattern. So it wasn't that. But there was a second effect, which was much stronger, which was actually... All trend following did really badly when volatility was going was higher, which I was completely, totally unexpected for me. I'd never expected to see. And, and the same was true of, of carry as well, although not quite such an extreme level. So it's not something I've implemented in my own system yet. And, you know, I'm nervous because it's quite a big change to the way I normally build things, which is just essentially to assume that, you know, everything works all of the time. And to allow things like, you know, the strength of trends and the level of volatility to dictate the size of the position, but not to actually say, now we're moving into a different kind of regime entirely now, I should change the way my system behaves entirely. And arguably, you should stop trading. You know, if you believe the results of this research, then when the volatility of an individual market is high, you, you should stop trading. So, so yeah, it was very surprising. Well, so as I said, I haven't unfortunately had time to read the full details, but let me just give you some uh, initial thoughts. To some extent, it actually doesn't surprise me. In fact, I would say this is exactly what I would expect because what you often see, and maybe last year in March was a little bit unusual, but what you often see is that once a market goes into a trend, actually the volatility goes down. 
And when you start getting close to a turning point and people are debating, is are we going to continue up? Are we going to go down? That's where the volatility increases. So, so I'm not surprised about your finding. In fact, I'm glad because I think this is how I feel it is. But if I was going to use it for something, and I don't know if this can be done, I would try to say, is there a way we can say it's not really just volatility, it's volatility plus direction. You know, that because if, if volatility goes up and direction goes down, then I, I think maybe you could create some rules saying maybe I do need to lower my my trade size or position size or whatever it might be instead of just looking at volatility in itself. So these were just my initial thoughts that maybe it's not so surprising that when volatility goes up, the system start to struggle. But what I do find very interesting about this, and this is something I have from a little bit of from secondhand information. But I do think that one of the very large CTAs in this space has something like that in their system where they change speed depending on volatility. And of course, if you can show that it works and it helps, then that's that's great. But from my recollection, I actually think that they were doing what you were initially thinking that maybe short-term systems would do better when volatility goes up. And, and maybe in some periods like that, they would. But I think last year, now just talking about speeds and all of that, which of course was a really important year for sh- seeing the difference between trend-following speeds, I think a lot of people in the first few months of the year when we had the crisis really hard, you know, were arguing hard, look, longer term trend following doesn't work anymore. It gets caught every time. You need to go short term. And we saw some massive flows towards short term managers in the following period of time. But I still don't see the evidence that long term that works. I mean, there are so few managers that I'm aware of in the short-term space that have consistently done well. And very few, in fact, I can only think of one that has outperformed a lot of the medium to long-term managers over, say, a 20-year period. But what I do accept is that there is this perception and that the narrative when people come out with these stories, oh, you know, but you know, nowadays you need to move short term because the old ways of doing trend following doesn't work. People are so open to that argumentation and narrative, yet there is no real evidence for this. Now, there is evidence that, as you rightly put, there will be certain periods where they will do better. I'm sure they did better in February of 2018. They probably did better, not in March of, of, of last year, but they might they did better in February of last year, I'm sure. But at the end of the year, we know trend following the trend following index, Sockgen CTA uh, trend following index, was up somewhat more than the short term traders index. So there's no long term evidence of that. So I'm what my biggest question is: Why are people so tempted to believe that narrative? That I don't quite get. Yeah, and short-term trend following is hard, right? And it's hard for a couple of reasons. One reason is obviously costs. You know, the faster you're trading, the more you're going to pay in costs, which means the more money you need to make pre-costs. And and that's maybe less of an issue for me just trading my small retail-sized account. Actually, it's quite a big retail account, but it's still a retail account, right? But, you know, if you're a manager with hundreds of millions of dollars even, which isn't massive, but you're still going to be incurring fairly substantial market impact potentially if you're trading that quickly. And the other reason is that if you look at the behavior of 
the profitability of trends that it does seem the behavior does seem to dip once you get to a holding period of less than a couple of weeks and it does look like the market starts to become a bit more like a mean reversion market so you're fighting on two fronts to to get fast trend following to work i mean i was just while you were talking i was thinking that maybe there is another explanation for this effect which is that if the market's really volatile actually that's when someone doing a mean reversion type strategy should expect to make money because it becomes riskier to have a mean reversion strategy when the market's volatile. So the mar- the market's kind of pay- paying you for taking risks when the market's really scary. And actually, sometimes in the, those very volatile periods are when the market's really bouncing backwards and forwards and spreads widen. And you can really make a lot of money by, if you can hold your nerve, you know, trying to buy at the day's lows and selling at the day's highs. So need a Hoffer type strategy, I guess. So, so, so maybe there is something in the explanation as to why fast trend falling in particular does especially badly when markets get scarier. I do wonder if the kind of psychological bias for why people love this stuff and think it's likely to work more when in a period like now when things are uncertain and the world's changing. Well, logically, if things are uncertain and the world's changing, it, gut, your gut feeling is you want to be in a strategy that's nimble, that's fast, that, that's adapting, right? It doesn't make sense to It doesn't make intuitive sense to put your money into this big, creaky, slow kind of behemoth of a trend-following strategy that's like a ship going down the Suez Canal to choose a a metaphor that's very appropriate at the moment. get stuck. Yeah, exactly. You think, you know, you you don't want to be be in in that thing. You want to be in a small, nimble craft that can can dodge the the issue. So I, I think psychologically people assume that if something is faster and more nimble, it will do better when the market's uncertain. But yeah, you have to look at the data. And I'm often embarrassed by how wrong my opinions are when I look at data. And that's exactly what happened in this particular piece of research. My my initial opinion was there'd be nothing there. My second gut feeling was that I'd find effect A. And actually, at the end, I found the exact opposite of effect A. And, you know, it, it's, I think one thing that differentiates, the key differentiation probably between pure systematic traders and, and those that that, you know, aren't so committed is that you know, we, we ultimately, we're going to believe the data. If the data is very clear and strong, no matter what our initial biases are, then we'll be persuaded otherwise. And if there's an idea that's really appealing and sounds intuitively correct, like, oh, yeah, things are scary, you should be trading faster. That sounds appealing and intuitive and correct. But, you know, people like us will go, right, let's look at the data and see what the data says. And if there's not a, re- a clear effect there, then we don't believe that. You know, there has to be, a, we have to see a strong effect to to move away from our initial position that we should keep things simple and just keep doing the same thing all the time, regardless of what the market's doing. Yeah, a couple of more observations from my side, and that is one, I mean, it really does show how important narrative is when it comes to, quote unquote, talking to investors and potential investors about making investments in this space. I mean, it really isn't just performance that they buy. The other thing is that when you see something that happened last year, and where at least for a good part of the year, because that was the case, that for a good part of the short-term strategies were doing better in general. I'm just using the index values. So you saw a lot of money flowing that way, as we mentioned. My concern is always that actually these strategies rarely cope well with large inflows and large AUM in general. So I do think that investors may end up getting disappointed when chasing when changing these things, less so which long-term, medium-term trend following, I really think we are much less sensitive to AUM size, even though there's always going to be some firms that overstep their capacity levels, of course. And then the final point I wanted to make is that 
<clears throat> actually, over the years, I have also done some work myself in terms of shorter-term trading. And what I found is that short-term trading and obviously looking for some kind of short-term momentum to make use of works less well on financial markets. It works pretty well on commodities. And so I think perhaps why the industry in general may have struggled overall when it comes to short-term trading or trend following is because when you manage other people's money and you need to build a firm and you want to have a certain amount of AUM to pay the bills, you have to focus a lot on the liquidity of the financial futures markets. But then they're the ones that are going to cause you the problem in terms of performance. But nobody really wants to start a strategy if they say, I can only get to 50 million, that's my max. A lot of people say, I don't, I'm not really that interested. But actually, I think that's the sweet spot is to find smaller, more niche strategies that can do that. And I do think, I do think you can actually do really well in the shorter term space if you're willing to sacrifice a size and focus on the smaller markets and also those markets that are less likely to be manipulated by central banks, which are the commodities. Yeah, it makes complete sense that a, a deep liquid and cheap market to trade is is going to be harder to make money in if you're trading quickly, whereas a market where you know it's got less capacity and it costs more to trade, then, then obviously the, for the small number of brave people who are willing to try and trade quickly in those markets, then potentially there's more returns there. So yeah, and actually, if you do look at the performance of, say, fast trend following for equities, and I don't know whether you saw this as well, as when you did your research, the account tested account curve in the back test looks very much like a dog leg. So it looks like it's quite a profitable strategy until about 1990. And then it goes flat or even starts to lose money. And it strikes me that what potentially we're seeing there is that the apparent performance before 1990s actually a mirage and in reality the costs there were higher than particular my back tested engine is applying and then after 1990 you know they had the change to the nasdaq rules and computerized trading came in and the things basically got cheaper to trade and then this apparent outperformance of fast strategies just you know just disappeared as it became too cheap to trade the markets and too much fast money came in and took that profitability out so i think there's definitely something to be said for it being a potential difference between financial and non-financial markets, which, again, now leads me to the problem that I don't really like doing that. I don't really like applying different speeds of systems to different markets. And, you know, so it's there's something there potentially. But for me personally, it's like, oh, I'm, again, I'm going to have to go and look at the data and consider whether there's a strong enough effect there to justify moving away from my base position, which is trade everything the same. Yeah, you know what? I mean, th that's also the philosophy I've been brought up with, right? And and we want to, you know, be the least optimized we possibly can, right? But I think I'm changing my view on this a little bit. I actually think that structural diversification is more important. And instead of just looking at trading everything the same, why not try and trade, you know, using different speeds and so on and so forth. Because what you could do is you could actually divide your risk budget up in different buckets and you could say, okay, so part of the risk budget, I'm going to trade the same on all markets. Part of the risk budget, I'm going to trade the same on all sectors. And part of the risk budget, I'm going to allow for individual markets to find their overall best rhythm, but I'm going to continue to recalibrate and make sure it doesn't completely fall off a cliff. So, I actually think that way you can build more robust models uh, or programs 
especially if, if you in your selection process also incorporate different time frames, meaning that you should not always choose what's been best for 15 years. You should actually say, okay, 15 years, that's just one time frame and you're going to get one, one vote. But maybe 10 years, five years, three years will also get a vote. So you force your selection to be more robust because it has to basically meet more criterias. And on top of that, you diversify speeds across different buckets and all of that. I don't know why. I have a feeling that is better than how many firms have structured their strategy based on this historical way of doing things. So so that would be my bet. Yeah, that's quite an appealing idea, actually, because I think certainly I think the way I fit my system is too much down the route of saying, what's the best way to trade this market? And not enough around, okay, collectively, how should I be trading my markets? So for example, if you say I want time diversification across across my system, what you should really be asking yourself is where is the best place to get that time diversification? So if you say, I want to have a bit of a fast trend following in there, because for pure time diversification, even if even if I don't think it's as profitable as the longer term stuff, you do want to have some stuff in there because diversification is so powerful, then then you, you really, you, that's probably a decision you should be taking across your system to say, okay, yes, maybe Niels is right. The best place to get that is actually in the agricultural markets. That's where I should be doing that. And that might mean that, that there's less capacity in those markets now for me to use those for longer term trading. And maybe on an individual market account curve, that's not the best decision. But collectively for the system, it's the best thing to do. And uh, I do, I have toyed with the idea of not quite the same as what, exactly the same as a, a risk budget allocation in the way you describe. But I have toyed with the idea of saying, effectively, for a given market, the correct set of parameters is some kind of sort of Bayesian mixture between something that's fitted across all markets, something that's fitted across all, you know, within a sector and something that's fitted just to that market itself. And the exact ratios of those blends, at the moment, I'm 100% in like bucket one in the sense that I don't yeah. look at any sector or market information. But actually, it, it's not, it doesn't seem, if a mar- I mean, if let's say you've got a market in your portfolio that is just really weird and just completely out there, totally different from anything else you're trading. And that might be Bitcoin, for example, if you were trading Bitcoin. Or for me, it might be something like the VIX the V2X, which are just totally different from all the other markets in the way they behave. It doesn't seem completely crazy then to at least use some market-specific information when fitting that market. It doesn't seem completely crazy. So I'm with you in the philosophical sense. What I've got to do, though, is try and do this robustly because it's much more complicated than the way that that I currently do stuff. And it's a potential minefield in terms of overfitting. So, So yeah, I like the idea. It's just getting myself to the point where I, I can do it in a way I, I where I trust myself in what I'm doing. Yeah, no, and I think that's critical, of course. But actually, if we take the starting point that I think we all believe in diversification, the importance of diversification, it makes actually not a lot of sense that we then go on and say, but let's, not, let's just trade everything the same. I mean, the, where's the diversification in that? And as you rightly say, we're trying to force some markets that has completely different rhythms into a kind of a universal setting, right? Which we know is not going to be great. So why even try? So I think, yeah, I think a mixture of things which just will give you massive diversification at the end, I think is a, a route worth investigating for sure. Now, we do have a lot of questions, Rob, as we normally do when you're on. So I appreciate all of that coming in via Twitter and other sources. But the first one came in from Dennis, so I'm going to go to that one. 
had a general question regarding investing in commodities. Propos. As a retail trader, investor with limited capital, how would you best how would I best invest in commodities? I'd like to diversify my exposure beyond investing directly in commodity-based companies. The simplest option of commodity ETF seems inefficient due to the contango risk. Purchasing physical bullion also seems inefficient at my level due to the storage and logistical issues. Futures contracts are the only other option and I'm aware of. However, the capital required is out of reach at present. Do you have any thoughts or any alternatives you can recommend? Do we know where this guy is based, Niels? Is it US or European? Dennis, I don't recall where Dennis is based, frankly. He may have told me in the email, but I just copied the question into my notes here. So if he's based in the Europe, especially in the UK, then one option might be to look at dated CFDs, which are pretty much the same as futures, except the contract size is much smaller usually. So it's normally like one-fifth or one-tenth. They're normally a bit more expensive than futures in terms of the spreads, but the price of them is actually based on the futures. So it's not like holding like a daily funded CFD where you're going to get ripped off by the broker for the, the funding costs. So so the reasonably that's one way of doing it. That's basically saying I'd like ideally like to trade futures, but too expensive. I'm sorry, I can go this poor man's option. Unfortunately, they're not available in the US, and not to retail investors anyway. Commodity ETFs, I mean, 10, you know, 10 years ago, definitely there was a huge problem with them, right? And, and there was massive issues with, with and even actually, not actually not 10 years ago, quite recently, right? There was an issue with oil, with, with oil going negative oh, yes, from yeah. last year. And that was probably related to, partly related at least to ETFs just being really dumb. And, the construction of yeah, them. So yeah, saying, we're going to hold the yeah. front month, you know. Yeah. And then we're going to roll at this date. Whenever you, and we're going to like put it in our prospectus and announce it to the whole market and say, yes, guys, please, every time there's a roll, take us to the cleaners. And that's basically what, you know, what everyone did. So I'd like to think that some ETFs have become a bit smarter about that. I mean, there's also ETPs, which actually hold physical asset as well. I'm not sure. I think those are quite common in the metal space, but not so much in the, like in the the wet or the live commodities uh, markets or the grains. So yeah, I mean, it is a conundrum. I do think that the idea that commodities were this wonderful diversifier, like just being long commodities would do amazing things to your portfolio. That feels to me like a, an idea from about 10 years ago when you had the you know the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index and many ETFs came out. And they were really pushing this into the retail space saying, you know, if you want to diversify, you've got to have commodities. And I think that was confounding things slightly with the idea of CTAs because people thought, you know, oh, if I add CTAs to my portfolio, then I'll do much better. Oh, but surely adding commodities, commodity ETFs is just the same. No, not at all, because, you know, there's a huge difference between a, a commodity ETF, which is structured to be long only, and which and a, and a CTA, which is trading futures and which can go long and short. Obviously, then they're not the same thing at all. So, so I mean, it's probably not a bad idea. And generally speaking, I do think you should diversify when you can. But sometimes that, if that's just really difficult or expensive, then it, it's probably not worth doing it just for the sake of it. So so yeah, if you're based in Europe, maybe consider the CFDs. Otherwise, yeah, the, some of the ETFs are better than others, but I'm struggling, Niels. I don't know if you've got any ideas. No, I don't have any specific uh, recommendation in terms of from what you said, but what's interesting, and it ju- just reminds me, but I'm not surprised that all of these ETFs on commodities came out 12, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I was watching a chart the other day that goes back to 1930 and it's 
you know, a proxy for the CRB index. And back then, the CRB index would be an equivalent of a 28 handle, right? So price of 28 thereabouts. And actually, since 1930, the market or the CRB index went all the way up to 474, 474 over that period of time, massive increase in that index. And of course, that was that peaked in 2008, where we saw a lot of these commodities indices. There were another peak around 350 a few years before. That's probably where a lot of this started, really. And then everybody got very excited. But from that peak of around 474 in 2008, that same index dropped to 101. So a 78.6% Fibonacci plunge, which ended in April of 2020, right? And since then, we've moved up. I think we're probably doubled. That index has probably doubled in the last year. So so I do understand the interest in commodities. I do th- think they're really interesting to both to trade and, and also to hold. But people just need to know that commodities can have these huge periods or long periods of time where they actually go down and not up. So that that's just a little bit of a yeah i mean it feels to me like there's a lot of people now starting to get worried about inflation which we, we talk, talked about very briefly at the beginning of the episode and you know commodities are an obvious way to play inflation i mean because again and it's an intuitive thing like oh in, in inflationary periods commodities tend to do well but actually inflationary periods say stocks tend to do pretty well as well because as long as the company you know has got pricing power and can increase their prices in in line with inflation then actually their earnings are going to grow at the rate you know theoretically at least at the rate of inflation and if you look at historical periods of inflation stocks have generally done pretty well as long as inflation isn't either too high or too volatile and then you know the uncertainty comes in and the risk premium rises so so i think we're going to see this kind of question in the next 12 to 18 months quite a lot because i not maybe questioned coming into the show but i think a lot of people are going to be saying oh yeah commodities yes You've got to get your inflation hedging right. And uh, obviously, quite a lot of people will be trying to hedge their inflation risk with, with Bitcoin or maybe with just gold. But, you know, I think we quite a few people saying, oh, you know, these, these physical commodities are going to be a great inflation hedge. And we're probably going to see the big marketing push of the ETFs again, probably. I mean, you mentioned a couple of interesting things, which is very interesting. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people will say, I need Bitcoin to hedge my inflation. Well, actually, Bitcoin hasn't existed during an inflationary period. So why do you think that's going to be your best bet? I think that's a bet against many other things. I'm not sure if inflation uh, is, is the main one. The other thing is, I think a lot of people believe things like gold is a great inflation hedge. And, and they have like these predetermined ideas as to what is the right inflation hedge. And I think that's a really tough call to make because I don't think it's always the same thing. And for me, by the way, inflation, of course, we talked about that a little bit in the beginning in terms of, you know, what is the right inflation? How do you determine that, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the day where we see, say, the price of a loaf of bread double, that's when people start thinking, whoa, inflation is here. I I don't know how, you know, a lot of people perceive inflation day to day. I mean, I can look at my bills and I say, so, you know, healthcare and school fees, that's inflation, right? But a lot of people don't have those kind of issues. They either get their healthcare from their taxes or they, uh, and they go into schools where you don't have to pay. So inflation is different to everyone. And, and unfortunately, I think the way to deal with it is actually different. But I do like the idea 
I do like the idea of commodities in general, but not just pick one commodity or pick two commodities. I actually think you have to do it quite broadly based. But when it comes to that, you certainly need to have a long, short approach because it's not a, oh, it's always going to go up, you know, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talked again briefly about the idea of inflation baskets, which, you know, and for the standard inflation measures, there is only one basket and that's going to be an average and it's going to be a wildly different experience for, and I think that's especially true over the last 12 months, you know, when some people have been still been going to work. And so, for example, the, the price of petrols would have been an effect on them, whereas you know, I've barely driven my car in the last 12 months. So and I've been working right. at home. So so that's almost completely dropped out of my inflation basket. I mean, for me living in, in the UK, where we have a pretty good education and health system, I I don't pay for those things that that's not affected me personally, but there will be people that has affected. So so yeah, it's tough for central banks, of course, because they have to do policy based on these inflation rates that, that will give wildly different experiences to different people. Yeah, I don't know if I would say it's tough for them because I think they are pretty good at designing the inflation measure so it fits their <laughs> purpose, right? Yeah. So maybe that's the hard part to always change their opinion as to what to put into the inflation oh, uh, measurements. Whatever you do, someone's going to be unhappy. Like, because yeah. And part of this is, is that this is getting probably way off topic now for the original question. <laughs> but people perceive inflation differently because people tend to yeah. focus on things that they buy a lot and which are a reasonable proportion of their income. But for example, when house prices go up, people don't see that as inflation. They, they If they already own a house, they see that as a good thing, you know. So, yeah. the, so the, and some baskets include houses, some include something called imputed rent, which is a way of trying to factor in house prices. So, and, and for many people, if you actually look at their lifetime expenditure on consumption, that's probably going to be a huge proportion of their, of their income that they're spending on that. So anyway. But the funny part <laughs> is that... Up until recently, people never talked about asset price inflation. Really, that was not the kind of inflation we were thinking about. Now we talk about it because that's really where the inflation has been. So anyways, let's yes. be good. Yeah. On to the next question. Yeah. We haven't answered your question really, but it's been a fascinating discussion <laughs> yeah, nonetheless. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Now, Ricardo sent in a question. How would you deal with big intraday volatility? I'm not talking about high-frequency trading, more of a 2008-2020 scenario where you would need to adjust positions quickly to reflect fast-changing market conditions. Good question. It's a very good question. I mean, a lot of people who are trading slowly trade only every day, once a day. Or in the sense that they generate their desired positions once a day. And that's certainly how my, my system works. The Some are bigger CTAs who may actually generate their positions once a day, but actually then take time to trade them over an entire day. Others may do some kind of averaging process where they, they, they basically split their capital into sections and effectively run maybe, say, five daily systems so each system's got one fifth of their capital. So that would that result in a smoothing process as well. Others may actually have systems that are effectively day have the same kind of holding period as a daily system, but can actually update their positions during the day. So if you are literally just trading once a day, then you're not really going to deal with big intraday volatility. So you can imagine a scenario where, you know, say my position generates and says you want to be short five fixed contracts. Wake up next morning, the system trades, it, it sells the VIX contracts it needs to, to, to sell. Then a couple of hours later, something crazy happens and the VIX explodes. And the system, were you to rerun your system at that point, it would want to 
probably close the vast majority of that VIX and maybe even potentially, depending on how fast you're trading, even go long because, you know, the much higher volatility with the way I trade, at least, which is we know is not the Moritz and Jerry way, but the way I trade at least means I would want to adjust the size of that position and, and potentially even change the sign if the move has, has been dramatic enough. So so that's the, the base. The basic daily system wouldn't deal with that. So the question is, how do you deal with it? It's quite straightforward. You can do something which is basically run your system many times a day. And most of the time that wouldn't have any effect because you're still trading quite slowly. You you don't want to set things up so that you're making lots of, that turns you into doing lots of small trades all throughout the day. That's just going to incur trading costs unnecessarily. What you just want to do is have a system that will mostly just trade once a day, but very now every now and then something crazy happens and it will do something else during the day to, to adapt to that. Now, the question is whether it's worth doing that because it is quite a big increase in the kind of operational complexity of, of your system. Because, for example, I think Moritz, the way he trades is his system generates positions once a day and then he sends those to the broker for execution. I think he's said that before. Obviously, you know, it would require him to introduce quite a different trading methodology if he was to do generated positions throughout the day because his broker would get quite hacked off otherwise with all the emails that Moritz was sending him. He would probably want to bring his execution in-house to, to do that, say. So it's possible. It's complicated. Is it worth it? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously, sometimes these big moves are going to be in your favour. And hanging on to your big position is going to benefit you. Other times, cutting it theoretically is the right thing to do, but may actually end up losing you money because you were on the right side of the trade. So so yeah, that I don't know. It's not an easy question no, to answer. No, it's not an easy question to answer. But the good thing is, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer, actually. I have a foot in both camps. So for my day job and done, we have one approach where we definitely, once a day, will take into account big changes, not small changes, but big changes, not just in volatility, but in other things as well. So we would adjust our positions. And I think looking back at last year, that certainly has some had some advantages, meaning that we didn't have crazy volatility in our returns and so on and so forth. Really, I think people were quite comfortable with everything that happened. But you could also say that that also meant that it was a little bit slower to get enough exposure to the subsequent rebound and so on and so forth. So there is positives or negatives. With my own trend-following model, I do the Moritz and Jerry way, meaning no change. The position size is whatever it is on the day of entry. However, as I explained in episode 120, the design of the model is different, meaning there are three different types of models and, and one group is a fast-reacting model. So the system made around 35% last year, and which was great, including the difficult period in, in February and March. But I think that was because of the different speeds of system. So it, that can also help alleviate some of the problems you may face if you have static volatility and position size, which I actually think in the long run, I actually don't think that's a bad thing. So I'm very much in the favor of the Jerry and, and, and Moritz for people who are doing it at you know a small scale, I mean, you have a obviously a sophisticated approach because you used to manage billions of dollars, so you know how to build these things. But I think for most people, if they want to do it themselves, I don't think it's worth it, frankly. But if you're obviously a professional manager and allocating with, with uh, or having money from outside allocators and a large research team, then that should not be a um, you should do the whatever you think is the best thing to do. But 
in the long run, I'm not sure it makes a huge difference, but it can certainly make a difference in the shorter, for a short period of time, whether you chose one approach or the other. But I do think, though, what the question is, which is quite interesting from Ricardo is, I do think that volatility as a utility is an interesting point because volatility used to be something we used as a measure, just to measure things, right? How risky are they? But now it's an essential input in so many models, in so many trading systems and risk calculations and what have you. So it's changed its role from being just how we measure things to now how we design things. And that is actually, to me, quite a big or quite an interesting role that volatility plays now. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I think actually this does relate very much to the, the me versus Jerry Moritz discussion in the sense that running your system, say, where you just open the trade up and keep the same size regardless of volatility, you can go then go down the route of adjusting your position every day to cope with changes in volatility. And then, of course, what this question is talking about is taking that one step further and saying, actually, I'm going to potentially adjust my positions intraday to cope with different changes in volatility. And it's probably the case that, because I know that going from step one to step two reduces your positive skew, but it makes your risk more stable. And it looks like the sharp ratio goes up, although that's probably a, le a less certain effect. It's, I would expect the same thing to happen in going from a daily to an intraday system which is that you're um, assuming you know you didn't do anything silly that resulted in more trading, as I've already explained. It would make your risk a bit more stable, and that sounds like the experience that the Dunn system had, Niels, from what you were saying. Because you're not going to, on those crazy days, you're going to act early to cut your position size and be less exposed to the to the risk, and therefore that will, you know, and sometimes that will make money and sometimes it will lose money, but it will make your risk more stable because you'll just have fewer of those big outlier percentage returns in there. So, yeah, it's probably something more suitable for an institutional trader, as well as it's, it also makes it easier to manage things from a capacity perspective because you can be trading throughout the day rather than trying to dump big positions into the market. Yeah. And go. The only thing I would add to that, and that is, you know, volatility, you don't measure on a very short time frame, right? You do need uh, quite a few days. So, Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But that's why we're talking about big events because yeah. if you think about the kind of standard, what, what roughly one-month volatility right. measure, which is the risk metrics measuring, which is what I use, it's and it's exponentially weighted, and that means that what's happened today is is going to affect it to this extent of perhaps three or four or maybe five percent of the overall weight of the volatility. So you need a big move. You know, if you're going from a period when you've had twenty nine days of quiet, right? That last day has to be massive to have a substantial effect on your volatility exactly. measure, and therefore your position definitely. And I think with trend following in general, going back to this discussion about long term and and short term trend following, I do think generally speaking that that part of the benefit of what we do is that we are gradual movers, right? We are not, we don't panic one way or the other. And I think that's actually partly what people pay for is for us not to panic on their behalf and just stay the course and, fo and follow the rules. So, so that's another uh, important point. I want to move on to the next because we've got quite a few questions and we've already done almost an hour, Rob. So the next is from Kat. He asks or she asks, I'm not sure, is volume analysis overrated? Any views? It's interesting because if, if you actually look at a lot of re retail traders who are, I'd say, quasi-systematic 
in the, they think they're systematic and they're like oh yes i i, I use the, the you know this particular system but actually a lot of it is in interpreting chart patterns and so on so it's not really something you can write down and program and backtest but they tend to use volume quite a lot and there's quite a few sort of popular or popular retail systems and use the systems there in you know kind of scare quotes which do look at both volume and price and they're interested in price and volume sort of changing together so you're not really interested in a price move unless it's happening with big volume because it's more meaningful if there's more volume behind it and i can un- intuitively that makes sense that seems logical it does seem logical now in the past i have tried to research the use of bringing volume in to my system and the first problem you face as often when bringing any kind of new data into your system is is the actual issue of the data itself right so now obviously we're trading futures so that means we're not there's no such thing as a crude oil future there's a there's a uh, where are what month are we in uh, there's a there's an april crude oil future there's a may one there's a june one there's a july one and so on and so forth and there's, there's a december one and crude oil is great because you can trade you know some months out a few years but that means of course you every now and then you need to roll those futures and with prices that's relatively straightforward there are you know you can stitch together the price series and it's quite nice now with volumes though it gets quite tricky because what will happen is you'll have a certain amount of what i would call real volume and then when everyone rolls from one contract to the next, there'll be a huge spike in volume caused entirely by people just selling one contract and buying the next. So if you try and stitch together a volume series, it looks like a the chart of someone's heartbeat. It's wiggling around and every now and then there's this huge spike in volume. So the first thing you've got to do is work out a way of factoring out those big spikes. And what makes it harder is that not everyone rolls at the same time I mean, in financial futures, it's a bit easier because, for example, say in Kospi, which is the Korean stock market index, everyone rolls on the last day before expiry. You know, they're, they're too. They just want to. They're not interested in rolling before then. It's nice and easy. For U.S. ten-year bonds, there's about a week to two-week window when people roll. For crude oil, I mean, some people will roll once a year. Some people will roll every month. I mean, it's really it's much harder to factor out and know exactly how much of the volume is due to to, to roll. So, so that. That's the first problem you have. Now, I think when I, and I don't know whether it's because I didn't do a very good job of this initial job of trying to clean up the data, but when I actually then had some data to use and I did try and research it, I didn't really find any sort of substantial if, effects there. Now, I'm possibly wondering whether it would be different for individual stocks rather than for futures, possibly, because I, th- I do think maybe, I mean, if you look at something like GameStop, for example, you know, the volume pattern for GameStop must be completely crazy. Like most of the time, nothing happened. All of a sudden, this huge volume came into the market, and at that point, the, the stock became interesting. Right before that, it wasn't really very interesting. And obviously, with individual stocks, you don't have this issue of stitching volume numbers together. So you can just compare the volume series in one go without any issues. So yeah, it's one of those things that intuitively I know sh- there should probably be something in it, but at least I personally failed to to be able to get to the point where I was able to bring volume in, find a significant effect, backtest it, and then build it as part of my system. Yeah, I mean, I've never tried, so I don't have a strong opinion about it. My gut feeling is, though, that volume doesn't tell you what direction the market is going to go. So uh, I wouldn't spend too much time on it. I think still, coming back to price is really what you 
need. And again, going back to this point about complexity and making things complicated, which was discussion I had with Mark last week, I think that's also quite important. So if you want to listen to that part of our conversation, just head back and, and Mark had some really interesting views on that. I'd just add, though, I, I do think you're right, Niels. It doesn't tell you the direction the market's going to go in, but I think it might be a bit like volatility. As, as you said earlier, and I agree with you, when trends develop, volatility tends to fall. So that combination of low volatility and a strong trend in the, in one direction, I think, is telling you, yeah, this is a good position to be in. It it might be the case that with strong volume would be another kind of indicator that you've got the right trade on and you should add to your position potentially. So yeah, I don't think it's a, it's certainly not a direction indicator, but I, I, my gut feeling is it will help if you can just get the damn thing to work. <laughs> I can see the fire in your eyes, Rob, that you really want to make this... Frustration. Uh, it's frustration, Niels. It's frustration. frustration. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks for the question. Gustavo has a question here. And it's funny how this is on the theme of today's conversation, it seems. But anyway, Gustavo writes, why should we change position size because of volatility when a trade is going our way? Shouldn't we only be worried if volatility increases when the trade is going against us? Because we may be losing profits by reducing positions of a winning trade. If not, what am I missing? This in a trend-following divergent strategy. I mean, this is... There's two answers to this, right? So one is going back to the whole Jerry Moritz discussion in the sense that, you know, one view is, okay, you buy the position, you hold the position of a certain size, you size it initially, depending on the current level of volatility, and then you don't change the size of the position. And if volatility increases, you, you just keep the position on the same size. Now, the reason, and I've explained before why I take the counter view, if the volatility increases, then the risk of that position is increased. And unless something else has happened that justifies a bigger risk in that particular position, my view is that you should reduce your position to maintain the same target risk level for that position. If the trend, for example, has got stronger at the same time, then it may be that the vol increasing won't change the position size. The position size may even increase because the trend's got stronger at the same time, possibly. But it does come back to this thing you were saying about also about the interaction between volatility and strength of the trend, right? So the question is, just quite apart from the whole discussion about whether you should have constant position size or not, it is, a, is an increase in volatility potentially also an indication that the, the trend is about to change because, you know, or weaken or... And yeah, that's probably a more nuanced and, and more complicated effect. And I, I, would, I would argue that there is, based on the research we talked about at the beginning of the program, some other research as well, it does seem to be the case that potentially when volatility is increasing, you're no longer in the nice, stable, going up situation. And it may well be an indication the trend's going to turn, in which case you should reduce your position. But yeah, on day one, obviously, you're right, Gustavo. On day one, if volatility increases and you cut your position, but the market continues to go in the right direction, you're going to make less money than the Moritz and Jerry who've just hung on to the same size position and, and don't care about the change in the volatility. But I, I do want to pressure on one thing here, Rob, and that is you make the notion that when volatility goes up, the risk goes up. People who use stops would say, the risk hasn't gone up, my stop is still there. Or you could have actually, you know, obviously as a trend follower, you would normally have systems where the stops moves up, you know, along the trend. So why do you feel that the risk goes up? just because volatility goes up. Because I do think that there's, I, I don't know why, and I don't have the right explanation right now, but I'm not sure we are 
I'm not sure the volatility is what we should be protecting ourselves from. We should be protecting ourselves from lo- from losing our account, so to speak, right? So there are two ways of looking at risk. There, there's what I'd call the trade-based view and a, and a time-based view. And you can argue with the labels, if you like. Right. So the trade-based view of risk is where you basically say, this is my trade, I've, put, I've got it on, I've got my stop loss. So I'm, I'm you know, my... I'm protected, and I'm going to measure my risk based on what my trade PNL looks like on a trade by trade basis. The view I take, which is maybe more of an institutional view and maybe not so applicable to retail traders, but actually is, I look at my daily PNL, and I look at the volatility of that. So you're absolutely right in that. In a, if volatility rises, it's not going to have any effect on my trade PNL, but it is going to affect my return PNL. Now, which should you care about? I guess, is the important point. Now, at the end of the day, they kind of all boil down to the same thing because keep things simple. Imagine you've just got one trade on and you hold it for a year. The sum of that, that daily daily PNL, you know, the total trade on day, or actually let's change it slightly. I mean, you can imagine a situation in which you trade, will do one trade every single day. In in that situation, your daily trade PNL is going to be exactly the same as your daily return PNL, right? Or you can imagine a situation in which you hold a trade for a whole year and do nothing else. Well, in that situation, your trade PL is just going to be this one big lump of money that you've hopefully made or lost. But your day during that period, your daily PL could be very different on that individual trade, because obviously that individual trade will have made or lost money every single day. So the question is for me, what, what's the better measure of risk? I, I prefer looking at the return PL because it doesn't matter what my trading frequency is, it doesn't matter what positions I'm holding. I could just look at my daily return PL. And in terms of things like the mathematics of sizing my positions and leverage and things like that. I think I, you know, I'm more comfortable with looking at things in the return PL space. I mean, you can translate between them, of course, but I think there's actually a fundamental different viewpoint here. And for example, one discussion we I've had with Moritz and Jerry was the fact that if you change your position size, it reduces the skew of your returns, a positive skew. It makes it less like a trend-following system. But that effect is much more dramatic on the trade trade level. So if you're looking at your trade level PL and you're and that's what you're focused on, and you ch- start changing your position size, you will see the character of that trade level PL change dramatically. And that will really like make you very uncomfortable. And I think that's what's happening with you know with Jerry and Moritz when they're looking at those statistics. But I'm looking at the daily return PL. And for me personally, I'm not see I do see a reduction in the skew, but it's not so dramatic. So it, it doesn't concern me as much. It's quite interesting because actually, for example, if you look at things like skew, you can get quite different results for looking at daily return skew than looking at, you can have trades which have positive skew, which are overall making money, you know, having this pattern of big wins and small losses, the kind of classic trend following positive skew pattern. You, on the trade by trade PL, you can really see that. When you look at the daily returns PL, you actually have negative skew. Because although these assets over the period of the trade are exhibiting this pattern, when you're actually holding them on a day-by-day basis, they're actually negatively skewed. So, so yeah, it's a, just a different way of thinking about the world. And I think that's no, no. what often leads to the mis- some of the misunderstandings be- between us. Right, right. No, and, and I think that's fair. And we're a very liberal podcast. We're allowed to have different opinions. <laughs> I mean, well, to a point, if someone comes on <laughs> and starts point. saying that systematic trading is crazy and everyone should just use their gut that instinct, is true. then, then there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a fight. <laughs> Now, but my point is that I think sometimes we equate volatility with downside volatility. But of course, that is not the case. We can certainly have 
enjoy positive volatility. And therefore, I think for me, it's harder to say increased volatility means increased risk. It depends on so many other things, including how your stops move and yeah. all of that good stuff with it. So I just want to make sure that people listening to our conversation is aware mm -hmm. that it's a bit of a gray area when we use some of those terms. Yeah, I mean, it's true. The issue is that if you're looking at, say, a 30-day measure of to measure, to measure risk, to measure volatility, if you then, from a statistical point of view, if you then say, actually, what I'm going to try and do is also try and measure the skew of the market, how much of that is positive, how much of that is negative. In other words, use a, an asymmetric rather than a symmetric measure of risk. Which is because you're right, people don't care about upside risk. You know, upside risk is great. We love it. It's downside risk that scares us. But to actually quantify the, the potential for downside risk in the same way that we can quantify the potential for symmetric risk using the sort of simple volatility makes it more difficult. Because if you think about it, you're kind of effectively throwing away at least half your data. Rather than being interested in the ups and downs over the last 30 days, you're only interested in the downs. So you throw away, and if there's been more ups than downs, because it's been a good trend, then you may be left with very few observations indeed to, to quantify the potential for downside risk. So yes, of course, using a symmetric measure of volatility is a huge simplification, but it does mean that the measure you're using is quite robust and relatively predictable. And you know, even if you're exceptionally good, and on any given day, your p is likely to be a coin flip 50-50. So really, you can almost assume that risk is symmetric, even though we know it isn't. But, you know, I talk about skew a lot. So I'm very much aware that symmetric risk is important to people, definitely. And I do look at it. But, you know, it's not the... It, it does seem weird to focus on symmetric risk. But actually, ultimately, that's what mostly drives your downside risk. Your, your downside risk is mostly driven by how much risk you're taking up and down. Because, you know, if you're taking a big risk that means you can make big positive returns, that means you've got a, a chance also of making a big negative return. You know, that there's not a huge difference between them. I think for certainly uh, the most important thing is that the people listening today is that again com comes back to this point about there's no wrong or right way of doing things. A lot of times you can actually do two different things, but in the long run, you're going to get to more or less the same thing. The key thing for making trend following and systematic trading work for you is, you know, applying rules and follow having the discipline and having a sensible approach. All these small things in the fringe of that is great to discuss and we appreciate the questions, but you obviously focus on the big picture. We've still got a few questions left. Emra has two questions. What are the trade-offs of recalibrating instrument and strategy weights daily using historical volatility and correlation versus keeping them fixed for years? when to recalibrate. So very much in the same theme about, you know, making too many changes. And I, just from my point of view, I just want to say, I don't know that there is, you know, again, much in it that can be for shorter periods of time. So, so that's just, just setting the stage. If you have a quick comment on that, because there are a couple of more questions we want to get to. Yeah. I mean, the way I see it is this, if this this problem is essentially a problem of trying to balance out the fact that the world changes, so the the correct instrument and strategy weights is always going to be different, versus the fact that you know you have an awful lot of noise and you can't really come up with robust portfolio weights using say just even just a, a year of data. You need many years really to get significant and ro robust effects. So you know in my own system I backtest changing the weights every single year. In my production weights in practice, I barely change because actually, if you think about it, if you've got a 40-year backtest, then having a 41-year backtest isn't really going to change your mind very much unless you can show that over that those 40 years, 
the the kind of you can re- robustly estimate weights that are changing every year and actually changing significantly. You know, changing them every day. I mean, apart from the statistical problems I've just discussed, that there's also obvious kind of operational concerns in and and also the potential for very high trading costs. So, so yeah, that that would worry me a lot. Someone who is proposing to do them every day. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. But I do. I'm not against recalibrating your model to current conditions uh, once in a while. I think that probably makes sense. But again, the longer term nature of trend following doesn't warrant anything in terms of you know too many recalibrations per se. And then a final question from Emra. You mentioned on your last episode that sometimes you keep your total capital fixed in the system after actual capital went up due to recent gains. Why is that good? Now, this is a Jerry Parker key turtle insight as to how he deals with his account size. So let me try and explain that, Emra. What Jerry was saying that if he starts with, say, a $100,000 account size and he makes 20%, but it's all open profit, that the trades are still on, he's reluctant to move his trade size in the system or the trade capital in the system to 120,000 because he knows that profit can easily be reduced quickly. So he would end up putting in a an account value at a high level which means all new trades would be bigger, but a lot of that profit could actually disappear rather quickly. So he's more conservative in terms of moving his account size in the system for position sizing, calculations, etc., moving that up too quickly. On the other hand, he's very concerned that when he loses money, that he makes sure it does get reduced quite quickly. So that that was the, the source of this point, I'm pretty sure, Emra. But I would, of course, always love to hear your views, Rob. So for me, it's quite different, actually. So the way a lot of people, particularly retail traders, they've got their trading capital and they're hoping to grow it over time. So for them, the best thing to do is as their capital increases to increase their position size. And it may be that they follow Jerry's approach and be more conservative and slow when they're doing that. But over time, effectively, you'll, that's how you get exponential growth, you know, because by increasing your capital as your, you know, you, as your positions increase, then hopefully you make more money and, and you get exponential growth. So you're making, you're making, not making 10% on, say, $100,000 every year, which is $10,000 in year one, you make $10,000. In year two, you make 10% on $110,000, which is obviously a bit more than 10, and so on and so forth. Now, my situation is a bit different because, you know, I, I don't have a, you know, I do have some income coming in from writing a few books and giving a few lectures and various other things. But actually, to a large extent, I do survive off my investment and trading income. And I treat my trading account effectively as, as this sort of black box and with a certain amount of money in it. And I don't add any, I don't allow any extra money to go into that account. So what that means in practice is I, I basically treat that account like a little hedge fund with a 100% performance fee. So if, if I've made money in a year and my capital's gone above the kind of initial investment, I, I, I take my performance fee out of the account and I, I you know, go and spend it on, on food or, or invest it perhaps uh, to make more investment income. And the, that means that the total amount of, of capital in that account is always going to be no more than a certain amount. That means I'm not going to get the exponential growth because I'm only ever going to be making money off my initial investment. It does, however, mean that if something goes really badly wrong, the most money I can lose is all the money in that account. Um, I've still got, you know, other investments out there, so I'll still be okay. So it, it for me, it's based around my kind of personal sort of risk preferences and, and where I am in terms of my life cycle. So it wouldn't make sense for, a, you know, a, a younger person who's perhaps trying to grow their account, but it still has an income as well. But for me, it makes sense. And it's just because I don't want to 
end up with, you know, a huge amount of money in my training account that's potentially at risk. I'd much rather be more conservative, you know, much more conservative even than Jerry, because I'm never increasing that capital amount. And it's just purely as to how I treat that account within my other investment portfolio. Do you top up the account if you have a losing year? No, no, I don't. So basically... So you reduce the trade level? Yeah. So at the moment, moment, for example, I'm in perhaps something like a 10% drawdown. So my capital is 90% of the maximum. I'm not going to put any money into that. I'm not going to take any money out either. That's why yeah. I say I treat it as a black... You just wait until it's it It's like gets a cash machine that occasionally spits out money. And when the money yeah. spits out, I go and collect it. I never put any money in. Yeah. And so in a, bad, you know, in a bad year, if I don't make any money, because I never get to the high water mark, fine, I've got my other investment income, I've got other income. In a good year, it spits out some money, great. I pocket that, put it in my pocket, invest it or spend it. Yeah, so that that's how I treat it. Sure. So let's, I just want to deal with one of the random topics that you came up with. Maybe we'll do two, um, not sure. But I couldn't help uh, noticing one where you wrote NFT has the world gone completely mad. So I think I think we just need to touch on that a little bit before we before we move on. I think this is a sign of middle age, Niels, because when you start wandering around going, oh, the world's completely, look at these young, these crazy young millennials with their crypto and their blockchain and their NFT, the world's gone completely mad. So I feel like, yeah, the, the mad old guy in the corner of, of the pub who just can't cope with more. I wonder if that's it. Maybe I'm just becoming a dinosaur. You know, maybe, maybe you need to explain a given example yeah, of what, yeah, uh, why yeah. you think well. Okay, is doing so mad. an NFT is a, a non-fungible token. So it's basically a bit like a Bitcoin in the sense that it that it's this purely virtual thing on a, a blockchain that's basically been created by running, you know, a, a sort of math, math bit of code that creates solves some completely pointless mathematical problem. But the key word phrase here is um, NF, non-fungible. So whereas all Bitcoins are like other Bitcoins in the same way that all US dollar bills are like other US dollar bills, there's no difference between them. These are unique. They're, they're, they're not fungible. They're different from each other. So the idea is you can create a unique piece of digital, a digital object and People have done things like, for example, they've said that they this is a digital object that references a particular tweet that Elon Musk has done, for example, and then sold sold the you know the uh, the non fungible token. And they've also done it with artwork. So someone created this piece of art, this non and there was linked to this non fungible token, and it sold for and I can't believe I'm saying this sixty seven million US dollars. Sixty seven. I mean, this is when you go, has the world gone completely mad? Because so why do people collect art? So, you know, I'm not an art collector myself, but I do know, obviously, in the hedge fund world, there are people who collect art, and some of them are very serious collectors of art. And and some, there are people, you know, there are people out there who run hedge funds who would think nothing of spending $67 million on a Picasso, say, or, or you know, or something modern like a Rothko or something like that. But, you know, you have, you then have the Picasso, you can put it on the, the wall of your, you know, your big hedge fund manager's house, people can wander over and, and, and admire it. And, and, you know, I guess it, it, maybe some of these guys even like the art, you know, so they, for some of them, it's perhaps purely an in, in, invest. So this is it. Like, well, if you're buying this, if someone's spending $67 million on a few lines of computer code, as an investment, because they genuinely believe that, that in the future, people will pay more money for it. Is that really crazy than someone spending $67 million on a painting they may not even like, or they may just have in a in a vault somewhere, in a vault somewhere in a bank in, in Switzerland, perhaps? Is it really that different? Maybe it's not. Maybe I am just being a, a boring old fart and, and saying this is just completely crazy. Maybe I, the whole art market is completely crazy anyway. But the idea of paying that kind of money for a few lines of computer code, 
I don't know, Niels. Are you? Are, do you? Are you completely on board with this, or do you think this is the world? This the world has gone crazy. No, I mean, I, I have to say that I have not fully embraced, as other people in, on our podcast have embraced this whole crypto world. And I do think again. You know, let's separate the trading side of things. You know, are these markets, and I'm not talking about NFT, I'm just talking about, you know, cryptos, can they be traded as markets and you can be profitable? Of course you can, no problem. But as you say, there are other things that comes out of these. Maybe it's a symptom of what's happened, you know, in the last 12, 15 months in the world that we are seeing some really strange things going on. And I guess my reference point is just that often when you see this, it doesn't end well. So I guess I'm somewhat skeptical by nature when I see things like that. But hey, it's a free world. And if people want to pay 67, whatever odd million for a few lines of computer code, I'm not going to stop them. No, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But what I can reveal is how the performance of our lovely industry is doing as of Thursday. And I think Friday actually was a good day. So you probably need to add a little bit of performance to this. Beat up 50 index uh, down a quarter percent for March as of Thursday, up 1.56% for the month of March. Oh, sorry, for the year. SockGen CT index also down about a quarter percent, up 1.36% for the year. SockGen trend index down about 12 basis points, up 1.35% for the uh, year. And the SockGen short term traders index, of course, doing differently, up 81 basis points. But still down for the year, 81 basis points, funnily enough. As I mentioned, my trend barometer was weak, 32 as the close of business on Friday. And MSCI up 3.23% for the month, up 4.64% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index is down 0.18%. I think third or fourth month in a row where it's down. So Yes, that's where we stand. Next week, I have Jerry back. So make sure that you have your questions sent in. Info at toptradersonplug.com. And that's where you're going to send them. And maybe he has some comments to our conversation today. You never know. I'm sure he will. (laughs) But as I said earlier on, we will have to arrange for a rematch uh, of the Jerry-Rob conversation late in the year. Any final thoughts, any papers that you came across this week that you feel were worth uh, mentioning um yeah nothing to do with finance actually and we mentioned briefly okay. the this uh, ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal I think it's still there actually so yes. so in my in my 20s I I did actually work in the shipping industry for a couple of years so have some you know sort of a bit of knowledge and understanding about this industry and I found a very good paper on the the Lloyd's List website so Lloyd's List is the you know obviously Lloyd's is this big insurance or reinsurer and uh, Lloyd's List is the has been the official register of marine shipping for hundreds of years because I think with when these things happen it's quite good to seek out people who really know what they're talking about to to explain these things so I, I sent you a link and I you can put it in the show notes but the, there was a really nice article there explaining in some detail both potentially what's happened but also the the impact this could have the longer this thing goes on you know there's so much trade going through the Suez Canal and the round trip to, to avoid it around around the, the sort of South Africa is can have quite a substantial effect. You know the m- margins in the shipping industry are not massive, and you know a delay of a few days can can have quite a substantial effect. So so it, it makes me think that there's a lot of things in the world that aren't very robust, that are very fragile. That re- I mean, I'm sounding like Nassim Taleb now, but uh, you know we really saw that that last year. You know. Some, We've developed into a very globalized world where supply chains are very stretched and and, and where 
you know, a small something happening on the other side of the world that, that you wouldn't think would have much effect on us could actually have a substantial effect on us. So, so yeah, what, I'm sure they'll get the ship free. But I think we should all, you know, everyone should be thinking, especially with what's happened in the last 12 months, about having a bit more resilience in the system, having larger inventories, and these things will reduce profitability. But I don't think we can rely on the world just working well without anything going wrong anymore. I mean, we need to be aware of things that can go wrong. So. This is, of course, a completely another discussion, which we'll uh, hopefully have one day. But I completely agree with you that there are things to be wary of. If you watch the first press conference that President Biden had this week, he certainly sent some pretty clear messages to China. And yeah. that, I think, is worth uh, noticing and watching. Of course, I also noticed then that China sent 20 warplanes across Taiwan the day after, just as a message back to the US. But that is an issue in general. And I, I think, and then we'll have more, we'll have more conversations, I'm sure. We'll have more market volatility to stay on point for this conversation as a consequence of all of these things. And the whole move from globalization to localization to make sure we have, you know, instead of doing the just-in-time, we go to just-in-case economy, that's going to be an interesting transition. But not for today. We're going to leave it just as we uh, come up to one hour and 30 minutes. From Rob and me, thanks so much for staying with us and listening in, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care and be safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.